morning. We started today's service with a 1960s song that speaks of the angst of youth and the impulses to withdraw from the world and other people to avoid the pain of life's experiences. But we could just as easily have led with, I did it my way, except I don't do a very good Sinatra, or one of the other numerous songs that celebrate independence and a life focused on following one's own individual needs and wants. This attitude is everywhere in society today. It influences everything. The entertainment industry regularly tells stories of individual heroism, not group heroism, the lonely epic journey towards self-fulfillment, and TV provides a constant diet of game and reality shows that pit individuals against each other in competitions for wealth, fame, and glory. Competition has gone far beyond the sports arenas into every corner of our culture and reinforces the notion that each of us is solely responsible for achievement of the American dream, which more and more equates with celebrity and extreme wealth. Now, the American story originated from that of Western European culture, which emerged from a feudal, pre-modern worldview, where the organizing principles of society, politics, religion, and economics were essentially the same. In other words, Leaders, politics, were appointed by gods, religion, to decide if there was enough food and who would get it, economics. But then Western thought developed an increasing awareness of the self. As people began to trust their own experience and empirical sensibilities, the focal point of knowledge shifted away from the king, clergy, or nobleman as arbiter of reality. The psychic currency of honor, order, duty, and allegiance crumbled. The mediating offices of king, clergy, and noblemen, each specific to their realm, became disenfranchised against the new consciousness. Instead, people trusted themselves, their own senses, their own experiences. Modern Western thinking eventually largely replaced reliance on authorities with personal and scientific inquiry, personal freedom of religious beliefs, economic self-determinism, and notions of self-government. The term individualism itself was coined in the early days of the American Republic by Alexis de Tocqueville, Frenchman who traveled around the United States, and he saw this as a unique feature of the new nation he visited in the 1830s. While Europe had this long history of monarchy and aristocracy, the new republic had largely discarded those trappings of feudalism, and instead thought of itself as a meritocracy, where personal initiative and hard work would result in governance by those best willing and able to achieve success and status. Tocqueville was attempting to assess whether such democratic societies, new to the world, would be able to maintain a free political institution, or whether they might slip into some new kind of despotism. He appreciated the commercial and entrepreneurial spirit that earlier writers had emphasized, but he saw it as having ambiguous and problematic implications for the future of American freedom. In America, he said, I've seen the freest and best educated of men in circumstances the happiest to be found in the world, yet it seems to me that a cloud habitually hung on their brow, and they seemed serious and almost sad even in their pleasures. 
because they never stop thinking of the good things they have not got. This restlessness and sadness in pursuit of the good life intensified, said Tocqueville, by the competition of all, which in the United States replaces the aristocratic privilege of some. So the efforts and enjoyments of Americans are livelier than in traditional societies, but the disappointments of their hopes and desires are keener, and their minds are more anxious and on edge, he said. How could such restless, competitive, and anxious people sustain during relationships when, quote, they clutch everything and hold nothing fast? Our opening words came from a book from sociologists called Habits of the Heart, which found much of the same in today's society. Quote, we Americans have always wanted to make something of ourselves. We have aspired to be self-confident and energetic, trusting that by dint of hard work and good character, we could achieve self-respect and integrity in an open society. Looking around at what's happening to us as a nation, however, everywhere we find uneasiness about the soundness of our society and concern about its future. More and more of us doubt whether we can trust our institutions, our elected officials, our neighbors, or even our ability to live up to our own expectations for our own lives. And anxiety is always close to the surface, a haunting fear that things have somehow gone wrong. For many Americans, these fears come to a head in worries about crime, moral decline, and the deepening divides of income and opportunity. There's a gnawing uncertainty about the future of our jobs, adequate income, and our family life, especially our children's welfare, end quote. We're divided, we're told, by race, culture, and creed, by differing views of national identity, but we're united, as it turns out, by one core belief, that economic success or misfortune is the individual's responsibility and his or hers alone. Currently, American cultural traditions define personality, achievement, and the purpose of human life in ways that leave the individual suspended in glorious but terrifying isolation. Now, beyond the problems of isolation and uncertainty created by an individual's culture, there are very real dangers that have begun to manifest themselves in our society. Forces have worked to recreate pre-modern thinking and develop structures to gain and maintain control in ways reminiscent of feudalism, religious oppression, and political despotism. For example, the growth of an economy dominated by unregulated multinational corporations has taken power away from people, both workers and consumers, and placed it in the hands of wealthy elites and a whole class of managers that actively work to divide us and control our lives. The corporate structure is a bastion of pre-modern thought processes. Hierarchically, they have a king at the top, and each little slice of the hierarchy has a boss. And the subordinate, no matter which boss he works for, always must do what he's told or he will be fired. Calling to mind that gruesome practice of burning in subordinates, otherwise known as heretics, at the stake. You're fired. A worker's life <laughs> is lived in similar relationship to the boss 
as the life of peasants to the aristocracy. Furthermore, the sense of isolation resulting from individualism makes a society more susceptible to authoritarian movements. According to author Anthony Signorelli, Nazism could only get a foothold where pre-modern consciousness was widespread. Both the structure of its ranks as well as the power wielded in society through the entire industrial complex of Germany required this pre-modern consciousness to serve that kind of state interest. Honor, order, duty, allegiance, these feudal ideas, they make the work of the tyrant so much simpler. Unfortunately, modern populist movements appear to have such authoritarian tendencies, especially when infused with appeals to racism that are designed to maintain a patriarchal, capitalist, white supremacist power. So how do we mitigate the damage and change the story going forward? Tocqueville argues that the physical circumstances of the United States contributed to the maintenance of the Democratic Republic. Laws, though, contributed more than those circumstances, and mores more than laws. Indeed, he stresses throughout his book that the mores have been the key to America's success in establishing and maintaining a free republic, and that undermining American mores is the most certain road to, some, to undermining the free institutions of the United States. He speaks of mores somewhat loosely as habits of the heart, the title that the sociologists chose for their book. These are notions, opinions, and ideas that shape mental habits and the sum of moral and intellectual dispositions of men in society. That's Tocqueville saying that. Mores seem to involve not only ideas and opinions, but habitual practices with respect to such things as religion, political participation, and economic life. The mores that Tocqueville was talking about can still be seen today in traditions that support our society and its government. We, as Americans, expect everyone, especially our leaders, to keep their promises, refrain from nepotism and self-dealing, and treat all people fairly and with respect. The concept that no one is above the law is also a key more. While there's no formal law establishing the rule of law, the principle has been cited in court opinions that have the force of law. There may be no statutes requiring all of these things, but they are mores and represent a tradition that supports our democratic system. These mores guided the society in its earliest days and need to be protected and restored today. Following Tocqueville, Abraham Lincoln tried to mold public opinion by showing the people where they'd fallen short of their own ideals, their own better angels. Lincoln refused to adopt the views of the American public when they conflicted with America's own ancient faith, these mores. Lincoln was deeply committed to majority rule, but he also believed, as Tocqueville did, that the popular opinions and sentiments of the majority needed to be educated by educating Americans about their first principles. Lincoln not only saved the Union, but he helped ensure that it would be a Union, quote, worth of the saving. 
Now, the story of Unitarian Universalism with respect to individualism developed in parallel with that of this country. And we need to accept our own role in perpetuating a devotion to individualism. Indeed, there may be no one more fiercely independent than a Unitarian Universalist. After all, many of us found this faith after experiencing a religion in another group where creedal belief was required and enforced by clergy and or family. Our hymns are filled with references to freedom of thought and belief in reaction to oppressive religious institutions. As a result, many UUs are very sensitive to any perceived threat to their freedom to believe as they wish. Unfortunately, this sometimes manifests in strong reactions to any reference to religious, especially Christian, beliefs, or even the mention of God. And this can and has made people of other faiths uncomfortable being among us. This is not surprising, given the teachings of our Unitarian forebear, Ralph Waldo Emerson. His famous essay, Self-Reliance, preached... Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. No law can be sacred to me but that of my nature. Further, insist on yourself. Never imitate. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. Therefore, do not tell me, as a good man did today, of my obligation to put all poor men in good situations. Are they my poor men? I tell thee, thou foolish philanthropist, that I grudge the dollar, the dime, the cent I give to such men as do not belong to me and to whom I do not belong. So a radical view of individualism didn't start with Ayn Rand. And we have to own that. In the words of the recently retired minister of the UU congregation of Annapolis, Fred Muir, who, by the way, married chair on me, individualism will not serve the greater good, a principle to which we have committed ourselves. Little to nothing about the ideology and theology of individualism encourages people to work and live together, to create and support institutions that serve common aspirations and beloved principles. The 2019 UUA General Assembly recognized this with its theme, The Power of We, which explicitly focused all programming on moving from I to we. This is the UUA's countervailing theme that unites us and binds us together as a movement, a covenant that says... As free congregations, we promise to one another our mutual trust and support. We are a covenantal religion, and we have a principle for supporting each other in our individual searches for truth and meaning. Upon this, a community may be created, one that aspires towards a beloved community, a community that could achieve reconciliation among people and raise interpersonal relations to a level where justice would prevail and each would attain his or her full human potential. It is the community that supports, nurtures, and helps to define each person's individuality. And those individuals create, support, and constantly redefine the community. While our movement has started de-emphasizing individualism 
and moving towards beloved community. We in the larger society have a long way to go. While freedom of thought and religion that Emerson promoted is still a major foundation of our faith, we don't have to accept the deification of individualism and allow it to govern every other aspect of our lives, our economy, and our society. To help us in moving towards the culture of community, we can learn from many of those oppressed by today's toxic, dominant culture and its institutions. In her book, Salsa, Soul, and Spirit, Leadership for a Multicultural Age, Juana Bordas makes a strong case for following the lead of Native Americans, African Americans, Latin American traditions that are not as radically individualistic as dominant white American culture. These groups that have resisted assimilation into that Anglo, male, white, capitalistic society maintain those habits of, of the heart of their collective-based traditions. The people who inhabited these lands before Europeans arrived lived in societies based on the family, the clan, the tribe, and these groups often share similar worldviews, a nature-based spirituality, and communal values, whereby the good of the tribe supersedes that of the individual. Similarly, Latin American core values include faith, hard work, honesty, sharing, inclusion, and cooperation. And among those stolen from their African homelands and enslaved in this culture, country, community wasn't just important, but necessary for survival. Deprived of family, clan, and village, enslaved people created communities among those thrown together in bondage. This culture continued through Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and even to this day. This tradition blossomed during the Civil Rights Movement, infusing American leadership with a new moral fiber. These groups are among those that the Unitarian Universalists are partnering with on social justice issues. We're learning to center our justice efforts on these oppressed peoples, learn from them, and take direction from them. Those of us raised to be white are transforming our white savior complex into a new belief in collective liberation, one that realizes that joining in community is essential to success in remaking our culture and the institutions it supports. We must be humble and acknowledge what we can learn from people of color about solidarity and community, and together we can create a new future. And if we want more people from marginalized communities in our congregations, we will need to practice what the UUA calls preemptive radical inclusion. This means acting as if those we want to invite in are already here. Some of our members might be surprised that many are already here and hoping to be recognized for their value to our community, regardless of race, class, wealth, sex, gender, gender identity, and so forth. A compassionate community is one based on love and hope, not fear and hatred. Those surrounded by love and hope lose their suspicion of others and develop a sense of trust. What better antidote to the poison of hatred than the balm of love? 
We can reach out with compassion to those taught to see the world as dog-eat-dog, where they must struggle alone against everyone else to support themselves and their families, or to seek fame and celebrity to prove to themselves that they even exist. We have a better vision to offer, one where we support each other and seek common goals, the success of all in a sustainable world. So let us, as you use, accept our part in promoting freedom of thought and belief, but temper our strident individualism that hampers community. Let us acknowledge the role that individualism has had in both American success and its fundamental harm to our social fabric. So let us listen to our siblings of color and work with them to co-create the next part of our story one that works towards common goals, including everyone in in the process and building a true beloved community. It might just save the soul of our nation.